Welcome everyone to another evening lecture with Francis Cabin Museum. If you're joining us virtually, if you're joining us in person, hello. Uh, if you're joining us in person, thank you for joining us when the weather is looking so uh, potentially rainy outside. Um, so thank you for that. Um, remember, if you are joining us virtually and you have any questions during the lecture, please feel free to drop those in the Q&A. Uh, we'll be monitoring that during the uh, lecture, so you can get your questions in that way. If you are in person, we do ask that you hold any questions you have until the end of the lecture. We will have our time for that. Um, so let me just get our slideshow up here and then we will get started. No matter how many times we uh, do things on Zoom, it never gets any easier. All right, so while I am doing that, allow me to just introduce um, tonight's speaker to you all. Dr. Christopher Minty is an editor at the Center for Digital Editing at the University of Virginia. A historian of revolutionary America, he earned his PhD at the University of Stirling in Scotland. And I am now going to, if I can get this forward, turn it over um, to our speaker for today. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My first word will be one of thanks. Thank you all for coming in person and thank you for joining us on Zoom. Thanks to the organizers, Scott Dwyer, especially Sarah Dishaw, who coordinated the event logistics and details of me starting way back in December. And I'm grateful for everything that she's done to get me here this evening. And second, I'm grateful for the location. It's nice to be back here at Francis Tavern Museum to see so many familiar faces. This is my first in-person event since this book was published. So in a way, it's more than a normal lecture. It's a book launch, maybe a celebration. And I can think of no better place in New York City for the first in-person event. My subject this evening is the origins of the American Revolution in New York City. I'll be discussing how the Delancey family and faction affected the causes and courses of the revolution in Manhattan from 1765 to 1775. Rather than looking at the origins of the revolution from a traditional standpoint, that is, those who became patriots or revolutionaries, I plan to look at those who became loyalists. Why did they become loyalists? Who were they? What motivated them? First, though, it's important to understand where they were. Unlike Boston, Philadelphia, and some other urban centers in the US today, little remains of 18th century British New York City today, except for Francis Tavern Museum and the fence at Bowling By the mid-1760s, New York City was the second largest city in colonial British, British North America. Its size was rivaling Philadelphia's and had surpassed Boston's. Its commerce, too, rivaled Philadelphia's and was well on, the way, well on the way to surpassing it. Militarily, it was significant as well. It was the center of British army operations in North America and the army's commander-in-chief, Thomas Gage, lived in New York City. By the late 1760s, church steeples, not skyscrapers, 
punctured the city skyline. New York City was Manhattan, and Manhattan was New York City. Queens, Brooklyn, Staten Island, and the Bronx separated from Manhattan physically and civically. New York City was located on the tip of Manhattan Island, south of Chambers Street, and everything north of that was uptown or out of town, accessible really only by stagecoach or carriage. In today's New York, consider walking from here to say the New York Public Library on 42nd Street. It's a bit of a bit of a hike. So here we have another map of New York City, and you can see the tip of Manhattan Island. And then if we here's another one with color, and you can see it's north of Chambers Street, it's all farmland, it's all grassy, there's a lot of trees. A few names that you can see there you'll hear more about tonight, the Delanceys in, in particular. And here, this is a map that's being placed on Manhattan Island. So we have the map, one of the maps that you just saw placed on a modern map, and you can just understand what New York City was back then. New York City has often been associated with loyalists and loyalism. Historians from as far back as the American Revolution have identified it as the center of loyalist activities, arguing that there were more loyalists there than anywhere else. This has, in turn, been reflected in what modern historians write about the city and how they situate it in the stories of the revolution. It's often been relegated behind Boston and Philadelphia, and its most famous inhabitants overlooked, with the possible exception of Alexander Hamilton, though his prominence really occurred after the revolution. Neither Livingston's, nor James Duane, nor Alexander McDougall, nor John Jay have the prominence of a Patrick Henry, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John and Abigail Adams, and so on. And I guess that many people cannot even name a single New York City loyalist. Though Samuel Seabury's brief inclusion in Hamilton might help with that. Why was New York City a loyalist center? Who were the main protagonists? Were its patriots less committed? On 24 June, 1776, John Adams, an opinionated lawyer from Massachusetts, wrote his former law clerk, William Tudor. Adams, a prominent opponent of British imperial reform and an ardent rebel or revolutionary, was frustrated. What is the reason that New York is still asleep or dead in politics and war? Independence had not yet been declared and Adams was worried. New Yorkers, Adams believed, should fall in line. Must it always be so? Cannot the whole congregation of patriots and heroes inspire it with one generous sentiment? Have they no sense, no feeling, no passions? New Yorkers were not mobilizing behind the war effort, but he could not work out why. Why did New Yorkers' politics, politics not match those from other colonies, especially his own? What confused Adams further was New Yorkers' history of opposing Parliament from the 1760s to the mid-1770s. Adams knew what New Yorkers had done in the 1760s and 70s. When he first visited the city in 1774, that opposition was what originally piqued his interest, as well as the loud voices and fast talkers. Had something changed? Adams thought so. He wondered if there had been an atmospheric change, if there was, quote, anything in the air or soil that was unfriendly to the spirit of liberty. But nobody in colonial British America was predestined to become a loyalist or a patriot. And if there's one thing that I would hope that each of you can take from this, 
than that. Nobody was predestined to be a loyalist or a patriot. It did not matter if they lived in New York City or New Hampshire or Charlottesville, Virginia. Colonists' respective journeys to the American Revolution, wherever they were, were influenced by a variety of factors, social, political, economic, historical, cultural, religious. Some paths were similar, others overlapped. Friends and family members no doubt discussed the imperial relationship and perhaps what it meant to them. It divided friends and family members. It brought others closer together. The Delancey family played a critical role in Manhattan's path to revolution, and they were likely the target of Adams's annoyance. Later denigrated as loyalists or slandered as Tories, most historians have labeled them opportunistic and self-interested. They, historians have argued, sought to protect and advance nobody but themselves. They sought and gained political power in New York, and in doing so, used everyday New Yorkers for their own purposes. They were selfish, arrogant, out of touch, and elitist. So historians have said. Not this story. <laughs> James Delancey, for example, the leader of the faction and family bearing his name, has been forgotten or written out of histories. His family used to own the tavern we're in now, and much of the Lower East Side. Educated at Eton, Cambridge, and the Inner Temple at London's Inns of Court, Delancey later served as an aide-de-camp to James Abercrombie during the French and Indian War. Delancey didn't leave many papers behind. A few boxes of New York Historical, a collection of family papers at the Museum of the City of New York, and another at New York Historical. That's about it. This, as well as his loyalism, has affected how he has been interpreted. Harvard historian and New Yorker staff writer Joel Lafour has written about, quote, what gets saved, what gets lost, what gets forgotten, and what the consequences are in her biography of Jane Franklin, Ben Franklin's sister. It's similar for Delancey and thousands of other loyalists. What papers of theirs got saved? What was destroyed? Who destroyed it? In short, for people like Delancey, they were loyalists. And that was that. Papers are not. It didn't matter. However, this long-standing interpretation generally presents the American Revolution in binary terms. And by that, I mean that New Yorkers were either patriots or loyalists, that they were either on one side or the other long before shots were fired at Lexington or Concord. This interpretation generally relegates the Delanceys and their associates to caricature. And most people in New York only recognize the name by the street in the Lower East Side. What this interpretation overlooks, however, are the considerable contributions that the Delanceys made not only to the popular political culture of Manhattan, but the coming of the revolution and the history of the early United States. My view is that historians and the public should reconsider the origins of the revolution without thinking toward the good guys and the bad guys in 1775 and beyond. And through an examination of the Delancey's political and social behavior prior to and shortly into the Revolutionary War, we're better able to understand their eventual loyalism and the loyalism of some of their associates. James Delancey Jr. burst onto the popular political scene during the Stamp Act crisis of 1765. The Stamp Act is often described or represented as the first step the colonists took toward revolution and independence. 
Historians may not disagree about what the causes of the revolution were, but they are in almost unanimous agreement about the Stamp Act role in mobilizing patriots. Contemporary historians of revolutionary America and of New York framed it this way. Of the Stamp Act, historian Mercy Otis Warren wrote, quote, it was the first innovation that gave the general alarm throughout the continent. The Stamp Act, Warren and other contemporary historians remembered, changed how colonists understood their relationship with Britain. Such discontent toward Parliament had not been articulated in colonial British America before. For historians, then and now, it provides a comfortable starting point for the imperial crisis and the march toward independence. Indeed, almost all historians have stuck with the neat temporal organization the Stamp Act provides. It offers a 10-year period in which colonists went from Britons to Americans. The Stamp Act was part of a broader maxim of imperial reforms when Parliament attempted to reorient how it managed and controlled the British Empire. The Stamp Act was intended to introduce more than 50 duties on documents that were used in everyday life, including those for clearing ships, licensing attorneys, indentures, contracts, bills, liquor licenses, playing cards, land documents, as well as all types of printed materials, almanacs, newspapers, broadsides, pamphlets. The Act, which would be enforced from November 1st, was designed to lower expenditures and pay down the British national debt. Its wide-ranging reach all but ensured that it would have a monumental effect on the economy. Indeed, as Delancey merchant David Clarkson wrote, the tax was on everything. With a tax on everything, the Stamp Act was wildly unpopular. The arrival of stamps in Manhattan on 23 October 1765 mobilized patriots and non-elite New Yorkers. Placards were placed in a city coffeehouse that threatened any who used stamped paper. Just over a week later, James Delancey called a meeting in the assembly room at George Burns' City Arms Tavern. And in Burns' Tavern, over 200 attendees discussed, quote, what was necessary to be done about the Stamp Act. Most of the attendees were merchants, just like Delancey. After long, difficult discussions, they determined in four resolutions that a trade boycott would be the most effective and efficient way to protest. As the attendees left Burns' Tavern, youths and sailors, old and young, rushed toward them, eagerly awaiting news of what transpired. But they were left disappointed. Resolutions, however effective, would not stop the Stamp Act going into effect. They saw action, not words, and they wanted to ensure that the new duties would not be enforced on November 1st. <coughs> Together, the sailors, youths, and those who they, they were able to mobilize marched throughout lower Manhattan. They smashed streetlights and windows in one New Yorker reported, quote, a mobbish man. The exuberance of those left disappointed at the Burns Tavern meeting captured New York's sense of urgency. It showed the lengths that they were willing to go to show their opposition to the Stamp Act. Delancey, an intelligent, street-smart political operative, recognized the distress. In fact, it's possible that he was one of those who contributed to it. Delancey was not just a member, but he was also among the leaders of the popular extra-institutional group that was known as the Sons of Liberty. The Liberty Boys, as they were also known, are often held up as proto-revolutionaries, groups of people who are somehow predestined to become patriots in the American Revolution. 
historian Ed Countryman has described them as the quote, the revolution's popular leader leadership. Tim Green, another historian, labeled them as quote, true patriots. Patriots were sons of liberty. People who became loyalists were not. But Delancey, a popular and motivational figure who was described by one onlooker as quote, among the sons of liberty, became a loyalist. And so too, a considerable portion of the leaders of New York's Liberty Boys, including, for instance, Joseph Alacoque, Edward Lake, Charles Nichol, all of whom were Delancey's political colleagues and political associates. It's also important to note at this time, people like Isaac Sears, who became a patriot, John Lamb, who became a patriot, were associated with the Delanceys. They supported the Delanceys at this time and mobilized with them. And in this slide that I'm showing just now, the screenshot is from the Sons of Liberty page on Wikipedia. And you see the list of, list of names, including Joseph Alacoque, including Isaac Sears, not mentioned that he became a loyalist. John Lamb is listed, McDougall, Hercules Mulligan, Isaac Sears, and others. What should also be said is that there's no record of Alexander McDougall, who became a prominent patriot in general during the revolution, served with the Sons of Liberty in 1765. Later, yes, but not in 1765. The Sons of Liberty, moreover, were not entirely, quote, entirely, quote, plain-spoken, self-taught, self-made men, as other historians have described them. Instead, in New York City, they were led by one of the most educated men in the colonies and someone who became a loyalist. What happened during the Stamp Act riots is well known. The participation of future loyalists in it is not, but future or would-be loyalist participation in New York City's popular political culture was not a one-off, nor was there opposition to Parliament. Indeed, the Delanceys maintained consistent opposition to Parliament's attempted reorientation of the British imperial framework from 1765 until 1775. And from 1768 onward, they were able to present a more coherent opposition. And what we have here, if you look at the date, 8 November 1765, James Delancey is writing to the Marcus of Rock. Rockingham was not yet Prime Minister, Prime Minister later, and he was the one who repealed the Stamp Act. He says, what say you to an American Parliament only to meddle with supplies, that's trade? Don't startle us in an American Parliament. Your colonies will exhaust you. And Delancey writes like this to Rockingham fairly frequently during the 1760s. And they talk about the reorientation of the British Empire. They talk about life, liberty, and commerce. And this is something that we'll get into a little bit. In 1768, James Delancey and two of his associates, Jacob Walton, James Johnson, were elected to the New York Assembly. More importantly though, the way they were elected reoriented popular politics in Manhattan. Put simply, like today, they saw as many voters as possible from across the religious, cultural, and social spectrums. To put their goals into action, the Delanceys used the city's comparatively well-developed print trade. In 1768, three weekly newspapers were published. That's weekly, so once a week. John Holt's New York Journal, Hugh Gaines' New York Gazette, and James, James Parker's New York Gazette. By working with the city's printers, all of them, they monopolized the weekly news cycles, attracting support, creating associational bonds. 
They advertised their candidacies and published many pieces that appealed to New Yorkers of all ranks. They also commissioned a pamphlet, a range of broadsides, and a series of short focus cards that described their opponents, some of whom were lawyers, as entirely unsuited for political office because they were lawyers. So they told New Yorkers, don't vote for lawyers because they're self-interested. They're just gonna stick their hand in your pocket. <laughs> for instance, many of the Delanciais on, including all of those on the ticket, Jacob, James Delancey, James Johnson, and Jacob Walton were merchants. And since New York was a commercial, enterprising city, they argued, quote, the good people of this city are supported by trade and merchants. Vote for us because we're just like you, and we'll put more money in your pocket rather than take it out. So as merchants in a mercantile city, they showed that they were the people who would advance New York's interests. They argued persuasively that they offered economic independence that, in turn, would advance the public good and improve the political economy of New York City, how economic and political institutions, organizations, and systems interacted. Their opponents, on the other hand, neither advertised their candidacies nor printed comparable election materials of their own. Instead, they relied on traditional modes of political mobilization, deference, word of mouth, or handwritten scraps of information. The Delanceys also took advantage of the city's taverns. They used their city's tavern culture of sociability to mobilize support, holding regular meetings in George Burns's and Benjamin Stout's taverns. They also placed frequent advertisements in the press to ensure that their supporters were aware of and attended their events. They did not specify any requirements any white male could attend, and when they got there, they were greeted with long tables covered with a wide array of alcoholic beverages and food. It's a lot of food and it's a lot of drink. As each person sat down, huddled up to one, one another, drinks and conversations flowed. And when the event was over, the Delanceys paid for everything. So these two cards here on the screen, they're about the size of a playing card and they were handed around in taverns, left on tables, very easy to pass on from one another. Here, we have an example of a bill and events like this were popular in the election campaign. So here, this one, there's a lot of drink. James Delancey was charged for 248 meals, 134 bottles of wine, over 106 double bowls of punch, 117 mugs of beer and cider, and an assortment of other drinks for events that ran Monday through Friday in the run-up to the election. Every day, they held an event in the run-up to the election and they paid for everything. They brought people together in taverns around New York. The Delanceys were determined to mobilize as many voters as possible, and it worked. All of the Delancey candidates were elected. The next year, during another round of elections and electioneering, the Delanceys consolidated their legislative clout by gaining control of all of the city and county seats. To do this, they incorporated many of the same tactics as they did in 1768, a variety of printed materials, tavern events. They best represented New York City's population and were the only legitimate candidates who could advance and protect their interests. As merchants, they would lead New York City forward on its path to become the most important city in the British Empire, 
surpassing Boston and Philadelphia. New Yorkers, in other words, had to vote for them. And they did. As Peter R. Livingston lamented in 1769, they had, quote, too much power over our common people. And as one newspaper reported, that Delancey's were, quote, New York's sons of freedom. What's equally important are the people who voted for the Delanceys. A majority of Delancey voters were loyalists in the American Revolution. Dutch, English, Scottish, Irish New Yorkers and more. Carpenters, shoemakers, tailors, gold, silversmiths, merchants, gentlemen and more. Their voters represented the city's diversity. Now in the 1769 election, their opponents, the Livingstons, they tried to mobilize support. You'll see here on the screen that they distributed cards with their names on it. These were all candidates that the Livingstons put forward. They also tried to author pieces in the press to mobilize support. These didn't work. They based many of the, the things that they published on religion, and they alleged that the Delanceys wanted to install a bishop in America. The Delanceys took this argument, just turned it on its head, and said that they're trying to divide everyone. We're going to bring you together. And it worked. Delanceys were elected. The Livingstons lost. Now, just because many of the Delanceys voters became loyalists, it isn't to say, however, that their votes were that they left New York and never returned. Far from it. A considerable portion of the Delancey's voters who became loyalists stayed in the city after 1783. Considerable portion. Around a year after the Delancey's consolidation of power in the New York Assembly, politics in the city was more partisan than it had been during the elections. Now, this was largely thanks to the emergence and rise of a Scottish radical called Alexander McDougall. He organized a coherent, popular association that opposed the Delanceys and their politics. McDougall opposed the Assembly's appropriation of money to fund the quartering of British troops and how assemblymen shut people out of a viewing chamber to get the legislation across the line. McDougall anonymously authored a fierce broadside in which he criticized the Delanceys and their supposed relationship with the much-hated colonial Lieutenant Governor Cadwallader Colden. Now, I would say that McDougall is probably one of the most underappreciated, understudied figures during the revolution, and he's one of the most important people in the, in the coming of the revolution. Um, I would say he's New York City's most important revolutionary. McDougall was arrested and imprisoned for the broadside, mobilizing large numbers of people both for him and against the Delanceys. A paper war emerged in Manhattan's press as Delanceyites and McDougallites contested who was right and who was wrong. The former labeled McDougall a traitor. The latter declared that Delanceys were working against the public good and had thus shown themselves to be self-interested, corrupt politicians. The Delanceys, McDougall alleged, were not working for the people or the city after all. The people who mobilized McDougall and stuck with the Delanceys remained with their respective groups until 1775 and beyond. Those who supported McDougall mostly became patriots. Those who supported the Delanceys became loyalists. Most historians, old and comparatively new, have argued that the Delanceys were politicians who sought only to advance themselves. This interpretation massively understates and frankly almost entirely overlooks the Delanceys' economic and ideological vision for Manhattan. 
They were, above all, New Yorkers. They sought to make money, of course, but they wanted to invest money back into the city economy and promote New Yorkers' economic and financial well-being. Just like New Yorkers today, they promoted the exchange of capital inside and outside of the city and saw economic advancement and security as the surest means to advance and eventually protect the public good. The Delanceys weren't Tories like the Stuart Jacobites. They, like all other people who became revolutionaries, were Whigs. They shared very similar, if not the same views, on the reorientation of the British Empire. They opposed the Townsend Duties, the Tea Act, and the Coercive Acts, and toward the end of the 1760s, just as their fall from popular grace was meant to happen, James Delancey wrote to a British Prime Minister, Marcus Brock, the person who headed the ministry that repealed the Stamp Act with a solution. In the letter, this is at the Sheffield City Archives, it's almost been entirely overlooked by historians. Delancey outlined his and his faction's guiding principle, the pursuit of, quote, life, liberty, and commerce. It was in that same letter that Delancey proposed his American parliament. Don't start off with a parliament in America, he told Robbie. The main objective for Delancey's American parliament was to enable the continued economic development of the colonies, from which colonists would, quote, support the government with all the trappings and splendor. For Delancey and his associates, their political economy was intertwined with their ideological, ideological commitment to republicanism, as well as their allegiance to Britain. Together, they were, quote, the friends of liberty and trade. The Delanceys put this principle into practice too. In April 1768, they were instrumental in the establishment of the New York Chamber of Commerce, which still exists today. The purpose of the chamber, the first in the colonies, was, quote, promoting and encouraging commerce, supporting industry, adjusting disputes relative to trade and navigation, and procuring such laws and regulations as may be found necessary for the benefit of trade in general. The Delancey's vision for the city was publicly articulated through the Chamber of Commerce's seal, which is what you can see on the screen here. It's likely that the Chamber drew inspiration for its seal from Joseph Spence's Polymetics, which was first published in London in 1747. Polymetics contained detailed descriptions and engravings of Roman gods and goddesses. Mercury, the god of shopkeepers and tradesmen, features prominently on the Chamber's seal. His catechists and cornucopia symbolize peace and plenty, quote, two of the principal ingredients of happiness. The use of a rising sun was also symbolic, an allegorical reference to the dawn that represented a new beginning, the hope and potential of the Chamber of Commerce and what it could bring to New Yorkers moving forward. The Chamber of Commerce was incorporated in 1770 and its leadership was almost entirely composed of the Lanceites and people who became loyalists. His first presidents were all the Lanceys, John Kruger, Hugh Wallace, Elias de Brosses, Henry White, Theophilac Bash, William Walton, all the Lanceys. His vice presidents were the Lanceys too, and so were secretaries, including Anthony Van Damme. Most of its members were the Lanceys. They promoted financial investment in the city that would, in turn, translate into further economic opportunities in new industries and sectors that New Yorkers could take advantage of. The Delanceys represented and advocated for a type of political economy 
to secure the future of Manhattan and the colony. They advocated consumption-based growth. As James Delancey told Rockingham, quote, life, liberty, and commerce guided his vision for Manhattan. And he and his associates advocated this viewpoint during the non-importation crisis of 1770, as well as the crises surrounding the Tea Act, the Forest of Acts, and the First and Second Continental Congresses. At each, at each event, the Delanceys took the lead in dictating New York's response to crisis as it presented itself. They attempted to shape the cities and the colonies, institutional and popular responses to Parliament's members. But with each crisis, partnership worsened and New Yorkers grew further apart. Now, it wasn't just the Chamber of Commerce that the Delanceys founded during this time. They also founded the Marine Society, which again is still around today. And it's many of its members, the people who supported it, became loyalists during the revolution. And the Marine Society, again, is still around today. Although both were Whigs and supported republicanism, the Delanceys and McDougallites held competing interpretations of New York's place within the British Empire. Whereas the Delanceys were moderate or establishment Whigs, McDougallites were radicals. And some New Yorkers who initially sided with or worked with the Delanceys shifted or defected to the McDougallites. For them, McDougall's ideology better represented their views. Some New Yorkers went in other directions. And this is where Isaac Sears, John Lamb, believed that Delancey's very dramatic at the end of the 1760s. And when I was discussing the quartering act with McDougall, met two of the Delanceys actually consulted with Isaac Sears about it, and he told them that it would be fine. Because with the quartering of British troops, money was going to be put into the economy as well. And Sears said, well, put money into the economy, people are going to go with it, but they didn't. Sears and Lamb sided with McDougall and became his fiercest supporters. As one historian has written, quote, competing ideologies structured politics throughout the 18th century British Empire. This was certainly the case in Manhattan. Here we have McDougallites on one side, Delancey's on the other. So in the UK, in Britain rather, Rockingham and Burke, they corresponded with Delancey's. They shared similar views to them. On the other hand, John Wilkes, William Pitt, they supported views like the two points. Ultimately, for James Delancey and many of his supporters, their ideas and interests, their political economy and their partisanship determined their allegiance during the American Revolution. Frederick Rhinelander, a merchant who operated a store on Burling Slip, captures the Delancey approach well. Rhinelander, whose family remain in and around New York today, dined with the Delanceys on numerous occasions and supported their measures and actions in opposing the tea and coercive acts. Quote, the right of Parliament to tax this country, Rhinelander wrote in early 1775, we all disapprove of. Rhinelander had been involved in popular politics in Manhattan for close to a decade, and he appreciated that it had degraded into a bitter factional contest. McDougall was going to upset and possibly overthrow New York's democratically elected government. McDougall, McDougall Rhinelander believed, sought to usurp its legitimate power. It was McDougall and his associates who were the quote, American demagogues, not the Delanceys or their supporters. And so Rhinelander turned to the British. Quote, if this province ever fights, 
it was in 1775, it will be for the king. He and his associates would do whatever it took to quote, counteract McDougall, who he called the Blues, and his supporters. For Rhinelander, as for Delancey's, they were loyalists. Loyalists not only to George III and to Parliament, who they legitimately believed would address their grievances, as had happened before, but they were also loyalists to New York City. They believed McDougall and his supporters threatened the city. Of course, things did not go to plan for Rhinelander or James Delancey or many of Delancey's supporters. Now here, Rhinelander writes about having a small political club. And before the revolution, many like-minded individuals like the Delanceys formed political clubs to talk about politics. They met in taverns, socialized, and they did this in 1775. They wanted to get them together to enlarge the club and had to meet frequently when the assembly was in session so they could get their views expressed and advocated for. Here we have another Delancey, William Late, whose family also remained after the, after the revolution. He says, I cannot with some allow the parliament every power, for it does not meet to me seem reasonable that the internal regulation of this country and both with, the, with respect to taxation and police should be within their jurisdiction. And William Late, like Rhinelander, became a loyalist. Both of them signed every loyalist document that I could find for New York City. They signed something that later became known as the Declaration of Dependence, and they also took the oath of allegiance to the British in 1777. Late also stated, and so did Rhinelander. Here's Late again, talking about the assembly. Our assembly, thank heaven, have pretty nearly pursued what you recommended. They have not adopted the proceedings of Congress, he means the Continental Congress, but have proceeded on their own bottom. Loyalists would be loyalists like late, like the Delanceys, wanted to oppose parliament, parliamentary measures through the New York Assembly. They didn't support all of the committees and conventions and congresses that were established in 1774 to 75. They wanted the Assembly to oppose parliament. You can also see the development of opposition partisanship in New York through the press. On the bottom, you see a, probably a familiar, a familiar illustration there, Unite or Die, the, the snake. Now this first appeared in the New York Journal. It wasn't Isaiah Thomas up in Massachusetts, it was John Holt first. John Holt also left the Delanceys and sided with McDougall. Holt changes his math, math set a few times in 1774 and eventually settles on this. And it, are, it captures that his and McDougall's approach well, unite at the Continental Congress or die. The top have a newspaper by, published by James Reddington. You see the difference there. He also changed it from a boat. He changed it to the Royal Coat of Arms. The Delanceys had successfully incorporated and then defended the same political economic vision they developed in the 1760s and 1770s. Life, liberty, and commerce worked for them after the Revolutionary War as it worked for many Delanceys and loyalists throughout the remainder of the 18th century and beyond. And even if many of the buildings they occupied or frequented aren't there, the signs of their presence, the loyalist presence in New York City remains. The Chamber of Commerce, Francis Tower, Delancey Street and others, the Marine Society. New York City's place, not just the United States, but the world. 
This is, of course, not to say that these people are responsible for it all. Rather, New York City's loyalists made substantial contributions to the city's political and economic development. They also contributed to the origins of American political practice. And those people and their stories are often left out of traditional narratives. And I, for one, would like to see similar work in other urban centers. And that work can begin with a simple question. Who are they? Who are Newport's loyalists? Who are Philadelphia's loyalists? Who are Williamsburg's loyalists? And by taking the question of who and exploring the why, we can better understand how elites and non-elites interacted socially, politically, economically, in the run-up to 1775. And in doing so, I think we'll gain a better understanding of the American Revolution. And with various 250th anniversaries on the horizon, I'm ready to welcome that kind of scholarship. And to more fully integrate loyalists into the study of the American Revolution. Thank you. for similar petitions in Queens or other places in New York. And then I found oaths of allegiance for people with there being kind of a boilerplate oath saying I, AB, I'm loyal to George III, blah, blah, blah. Um, and just a list of names. Now, some of them have their occupation, which is very interesting, because um, I wanted to work out who they were. And then in 1776, after the British reclaimed New York, um, a minister of Trinity Church authors the Declaration of Dependence and just leaves it in a tavern on the table for people to come in and sign. So people come in and sign all their names and that's at the New York Historical Society, so you can go see it. Um, I used that to try and work out who they were. Now, when I was entering all these names into a database, I started to notice people's names. I knew that their, their dad, their brother was a patriot. So Peter Van Brew Livingston Jr., his dad was a patriot. He was in New York when the British were there. So he was like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the oath of allegiance because it's gonna be difficult for me if I don't. 
So there's a lot of that. You have people who do it just to kind of look after themselves, and you have people kind of not really switching sides, but signing multiple documents. So they'll sign the Continental Association, which was put out in 1774 after the Continental Congress, and then they'll take the oath of allegiance because they feel that they had to. Um, that's sort of the most, that's a public articulation of loyalism, but is it though? Because if you're switching sides, are you really a loyalist? And the same thing, are you really a patriot if you're taking a loyalist oath of allegiance or signing something like that? So that's, I see people kind of flip-flopping a lot, and that's how I use, I use this to work backward. Um, so I identified nearly 10,000 loyalists, and then I eventually honed in to just people in Manhattan, because as I was in the New York State Archives in Albany, I was looking through their probate records. And then one of the archivists there, um, someone Jim Foles, who's a fabulous researcher, pointed me in the right direction here, suggested that I look at land records. Why do you look at land records? Because when I was looking at probate records, I kept seeing the same names again and again and again. And they were in this, not always in the same order, but the same groups of people. So the Nickel, Alcohol, Banker Jr., they were all together. Rhinelanders and Lates together. They were being witnesses or executors in someone's probate records. And then I found out they were buying land together as well. They were buying land in upstate. And they were doing it together. Or they were investing in vessels together. And that's how I sort of went back into the 1760s because these bonds, they start in 1768 with the election. And we're seven, maybe a little, little earlier in 1765, but it's hard to pin that down. But in 68, they come together and then they stay together. And they start branching out, buying things. When the Americans have control of New York City, they go to Jersey and they come back and they stay together. So they stay after the revolution. But in terms of sort of private articulations, I've not found anything like anything like that. I find correspondence that people wrote hoping that someone might not come through their mail later. Um, so there's, there's that, but if some of them were obvious people, so Angle convinced who remained in New York. Someone, the person who authored the Declaration of Dependence, been through a bunch of his correspondence, and he talks about how it's an unnatural rebellion, how it's terrible, and how he wants things to come back to normal, and his friends who left to come back. Um, so there's that. But the public articulations of what I was really focused on, although got really complicated because people were searching sites. Uh, a question from the chat. Um, what are your thoughts on the McDougal faction's accusations that the Delanceys engaged in voter fraud to obtain their majority and the subsequent demand for a secret ballot? Um, I don't think it's voter fraud. I think it's just they, they were successfully able to mobilize voters. They get, they, the Delanceys did position people to try and like come vote for us, maybe a bit more aggressive than that. So James Delancey's uncle, Oliver Delancey, he was one of the people to kind of shepherd people up and go vote for them. And some historians have said that they bribed them because they paid for all their meals. And the Delanceys didn't want, the way voting happened was it was done in sort of open air. So that's how they suggested like intimidation. So it's, I think that that is a, it's a valid criticism and claim. But I think that the way that Delancey's mobilized support was more effective. Because I've not found evidence of people saying that and there might be some right there, and if there is, please send it to me. But I haven't found evidence of people saying, oh, I was forced to vote for them because of Oliver Delancey, who's this big guy serving the French and the war, I'm scared. And like, I, I love this house. I haven't found anything like that, but that stuff could be out there. And if there is, please send it to my way. Anyone in the 
in the room here have a question? Okay. Uh, did you look at um, the land sales as they might relate to food and the grouping of um, political oppositions? Because I'm thinking that the Dutch, uh, Stuyvesant and Bayard, were on the Hudson River side, and they maintained that property. And the McDougals were on the East River side, but and I don't know exactly what date this map is, but it looks like that's where all the food is coming from. And if that's the case, did Delancey organize his associates to buy land in that area? I don't know. I haven't looked at it in relation to food, but I think that's a really good idea because food diplomacy is something that's really critical in the revolutionary more broadly. But that could be, that's definitely something that I think I could explore a little further because that would be, that would be really interesting. Because after the revolution, Delancey's land and any other loyalists get taken from them and they all get sold. And what I found is that some of Delancey's associates who stayed, they bought that land. They bought the land that their, their associates used to own. Um, but I think that that, looking at how the land was used, could be something important because I haven't thought about that once. Thank you. Um, another question from the chat um, from Robert. You mentioned that the Delancey loyalists did not believe in violence to attend for interest. Didn't Delancey lead a loyalist regiment to fight against the Patriots? Yes, uh, it was a different James. There are a lot of Jameses. Like James Delancey Jr. is the one that I've been talking about. His father also called James Delancey. And this is Captain James Delancey, who was more up in Westchester. And he was a bit of a rogue and he did fight in sort of loyalist regiment so did oliver delancey oliver delancey led the loyalist regiment james delancey the person who's on the cover of the book kind of the central figure he leaves new york in 1775 never comes back because he wants to go and petition for new york's place and to fight for their his constituents interests by the time he goes things developed he doesn't come back because things have gone like think how long it takes to go across the atlantic on a ship by the time that happens and he's reading the newspaper a few months later things have developed so that he doesn't come back okay um i think it's someone else in the room who raised their hand you had an incredible comment on the anglican church which most of the loyalists mm -hmm. and i wanted to know if you knew if there are any presbyterian loyalists and then just a, a comment there google is very close to hamilton who pursued a path very early on at King's College to protect loyalists from being hung yeah. and later continued that to include them. But he also wrote 150 pages in 1774 called Farmer Confusion in mm -hmm. Defense of Congress, where you can pretty much extract half the Declaration of Independence from, mm -hmm. which Robert Livingston, an author, was well aware of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. The person that's really, 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 not there's Presbyterian oil. We were, we were chatting before, and I mentioned at the back of my book is where I give us a collective biography of all of the, the loyalists that I identified. So, like going way back to when this was my dissertation, that was kind of the centerpiece was this collective biography of nearly 10,000 loyalists. And now it's just an appendix. Um, but what I found was is that by far most loyalists were Anglican, and it wasn't even close. And 
I thought, wow, this is really interesting. It was something like nearly 60%. And the rest were from Presbyterians, Huguenots, Dutch Reformed. They built up the other, the other parts of it. But as we were talking about before I started, I had more sources for Anglicans. So the, the data was kind of skewed. So Trinity Church has digitized a lot like baptismal records, marriages, and it's really interesting. You can go through and see people's what they baptized their children. And after the British take control, you start seeing like Henry Clinton surname or Anne Britannia surname, which is quite interesting. Uh, there were Presbyterian loyalists, but it was um, compared to Anglicans, it was minuscule. Um, and McDougall and Hamilton, like Hamilton started at King's College and one of his mentors was the president, Miles Cooper. Miles Cooper is a very prominent loyalist. He also leaves. And the incident he was referring to is when sort of a mob like go up to King's College, which is now Columbia, and they might tar and feather him or cause him some sort of harm. And Hamilton and one other student kind of stop them, which allows Miles Cooper to escape. And he ends up going on a boat to New York Harbor and eventually sails across the Atlantic. And he ends up in Edinburgh, and that's where he dies. He doesn't come back, but the person I was talking about earlier at Trinity's Church, that's who he's writing to. It's Charles Ingalls to Miles Cooper, and the correspondence I found is in Edinburgh. Um, so some historians have said that because of Hamilton's relationship with Cooper, that's why he kind of protected him in that moment. Um, and Hamilton, is sort of, uh, after the revolution, fights to protect loyalists and doesn't want them to be too severely punished um, for their, their loyalism and wants them to, to reintegrate into New York society. And many of them do. So like Frederick Rhinelander, he's one of the people who I talk about a lot in the book. He signed every loyalist document that I found. He stays and he becomes very wealthy and eventually sort of socializes with the Astor family. So when he dies in the early 1800s, no mention of loyalism or being a Tory in his sort of death notice, but if you go through the papers of George Washington, he's mentioned by name as a Tory out in the English neighborhood in New Jersey. So by work of someone like Hamilton, help people like Rhinelander and the Lake family reintegrate. But going back to 1774, Hamilton does engage in a sort of a lengthy paper war with Samuel Seabury, and they go back and forth. And that's when Hamilton kind of outlines his opposition to Parliament. And Seabury is, he is a, much more sort of authoritarian loyalist than the people that I study. Um, and they just kind of go back and forth. And the Delancey kind of fall in the middle. They're not as far as someone like Seabury. It's quite interesting because Hamilton, by that point, is very, very young. And before then and after then, like he doesn't really do much before, but after he goes to serve, serve during the war, Cooper goes. Any other questions in the room or about out of time? One more. I'm going to take this is going to be our last question for the evening. Um, yes, hi. Thanks, Christopher. Just a quick question. Obviously, there's Delancey Street in New York City. There is some remembrance of who they were historically. Was there a time after the Revolutionary War when people felt good about the Delancey contributions to New York that led to the naming of the street for them? Uh, the naming of the street is because it's, that's where the majority of the land was. It was mainly for that. Um, but people like Rhinelanders and the Lates and the Nichols, they kind of continued 
want to say his legacy because that makes it more sense, more dramatic than it is, but they continued his vision for the city and the, the vision for its economic development. And because of the founding of things like the Chamber of Commerce, that spurs on the city's economic development. And that was from the landscapes largely. So they helped turn New York City into sort of the biggest city in America, most economically productive. And that was because of people like James Delancey, not just him, but he played a really prominent role in that. Thank you. All right, um, that's all the time we have for questions. If you are in the room, you will have some time to maybe speak in some questions. And if you're interested in the book, we do have it available for purchase in the back of the room. Anything you want to say to thank you? Thank back? you all for coming. Thank you. Okay, um, thank you so much. That was such an interesting lecture. We're really looking forward to this one. Um, if you are interested in keeping up to date with us, you can visit our website, promptheskavernmuseum.org, to check out our calendar of events. Our next lecture will be on Thursday, July 27th, and it will be virtual only, so you don't have to come out in the late July heat. Uh, thank you for those of you who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission and share the history of the American Revolutionary Era with the public. If you would like to donate, you can also do that on our website. Thank you again for joining us at another Bronx Tavern Museum lecture, and we hope to see you again. Thank you.